Hello, TPC parents. Uh, this is Dr. Norm Tebow with, uh, with another podcast for you. Um, really thrilled today to have as our guest, Dr. Dan Hughes. Uh, you've heard his name and you may have uh, his books. Uh, Dr. Hughes is a clinical psychologist with a limited practice in South Portland, Maine. He founded and developed Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, which we often call DEP here on campus, the treatment of children who have experienced abuse and neglect and who demonstrate ongoing problems related to attachment and trauma. And as many of you know, that's, that's who we work with. This treatment occurs in a family setting. The treatment model has expanded to become a general model of family treatment. Dr. Hughes has spent over 40 years helping children and youth reach their full potential and reconnect with others in their lives. We love DDP here at Three Point Center. And as our parent, you'll be familiar with some of the concepts that Dr. Hughes and I speak of. Dan has conducted seminars, workshops, spoken at conferences and guest lectured throughout the US, Europe, Canada and Australia over the past 18 years. He's a member of the American Psychological Association and is also president of the Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy Institute, which is responsible for the certification of professionals in DDP. And with that, you guys, I'm so thrilled to welcome Dr. Dan Hughes. Uh, Dan, we, as I mentioned to you, we love DDP here on campus. We find that it's a wonderful way for us to work with kids with complex trauma of the adopted children we work with. We're so grateful for your work. So thank you for being with us today. You're welcome, Norms. Good to be here. So a, a little background, if we can. How did you in particular become involved uh, in treating attachment and trauma? How did you develop DDP? Well, uh, as many things in life, it, it uh, was due to failure. <laughs> uh, I, was de- I was developing a child abuse treatment program. Uh, I was using the therapies available at the time. Uh, they were not helpful. Yeah. Um, even though they were claimed to be evidence-based, they truly weren't. Uh, and so I was looking for other models, other ways of reaching these kids and, the, and their parents, some of whom were still in their biological homes, some who were now in foster care or, or who had been adopted were really struggling. So um, I start looking and what I came up with that I realized was... Uh, had not been uh, utilized was attachment theory and research. Uh, when I was in graduate school and learned about it, it was considered a new age uh, uh, theory that would have its day and then just recede and disappear. Uh, when in fact, it has since become the dominant model of child development in the world with 30,000 peer reviewed studies showing research, showing sure. that it is a uh, extremely important theory that has a great deal of research behind it from birth to old age. Uh, So uh, as I uh, learned more and more about attachment, more than I had in in school, I kept looking for connections. How do I make it practical? How do I utilize it in therapy? How do do I teach parents to utilize it in, uh, in parenting? And that's, and it's been a lifelong uh, journey. It's constantly evolving. Um, for example, one of my books, Building the Bonds of Attachment, is now in a third edition. Yeah. When essentially it's a composite case study uh, or a story uh, about a uh, uh, fiction. It's a, fic- it's, a, it's a composite of many cases that I've dealt with over the years. Uh, with, a, with a therapist, a foster parent, and a child. Uh, and it's the third edition because the model has changed over the years. So as I, after I wrote the first edition, I realized what I'm doing now and what I'm recommending now has changed over what I recommended when I wrote it. So I had to write a second edition. So I had to change the story and change the interventions. And then it happened again. So then I wrote a third edition. I probably will have to write a fourth, but I don't know if I have the energy. Well, isn't it wonderful that it does continue to evolve based on new information? You know, I I think about, uh, you know, theories of epigenetics and these other variables that are tying into and and supporting DDP. 
And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for that kind of work because we here, we uh, on the front line really need it. So you were working with uh, traumatized children, abused children, and came up with the concepts of PACE. Now, our, our parents are familiar with PACE, but how did you come up with, you know, being playful, being accepting, curious and empathic? What, how did that develop for you? Well, as I, as I was utilizing uh, uh, attachment principles in the therapy and the therapy was evolving, it was changing. And then I decided I wanted to teach it to other therapists. Um, basically, it's how to have relationships with kids who either don't want to have a relationship or don't know how to have a relationship. And then so when I was trying to, to write about it, I thought, well, what, what, what is it? how am I when I'm relating to these kids so that they're more likely to relate back with me? And I realized I'm the same way I am as I was when my kids were young, mm -hmm. were babies and toddlers and three-year-olds and four-year-olds. It's that way. And then I thought, well, how am I, how was I when they were young like that? And I realized most of the time, uh, the heart of the relationship was I was being playful with them, accepting them, curious about what they're doing and why they're doing it, uh, what they think and feel and want, and having empathy for their hard times. So I thought, that's it. So when I, and I realized I'm doing very similar things in therapy as I did with my own kids when they were young. Wow. Wow. So being playful, it doesn't mean being funny all the time. Um, what does it mean for our parents to be, to have a playful frame of mind? Well, playful is more of a lightness, a light touch, uh, seeing the positive, having confidence, being optimistic, um, keeping the problems uh, in their place so they don't take over the entire relationship or the entire perception of the child. So there has to be room for the positive in the child. I, I can't lose sight of the qualities in the child that are there and, and may have been there stronger when he was born, but they, they're still there. I got to search for them, find them. So if I have that attitude, then, then there is going to be a lightness about my way of relating. And sometimes it is, it, it is more intense. So, so, so there's laughter involved and teasing, not in a sarcastic way, but in a light, just connecting way. And sometimes that has a very important place because the kids don't want affection. They don't want somebody to really like them. But if you're being silly together and laughing and smiling over something silly and you get eye contact, then something you usually don't get, they get closer to you than if you try to be affectionate with them. Mm -hmm. I realize that when the kids are receptive to just being light, playful, teasing, laughing, it really builds a connection. So then I utilized it more. Uh, I got to convince people, you don't force it though. You don't tell jokes. You don't distract kids from their trauma or their anger. You don't try to tease them out of their anger. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a different experience. But when there's space for it, when there's sort of just things are moving along and there's a way, an appropriate way in context to, to laugh about something, to be silly about something, to tease about something, then it really helps, helps the relationship. Very good. The acceptance part, sometimes for parents can be challenging because we're not talking about accepting behaviors. We're talking about accepting perspectives and honoring their worldview. Can you, can you speak to our parents a little bit about that acceptance and why it's so important? Well, that's the inner life of the child. That is the core of the identity of who I am. So if a parent says, I'm not angry at you, I'm angry at what you do. Acceptance sort of brings that alive. I'm not angry with you, which means I'm not angry that you hate your brother. I might be angry that you punch your brother, but I'm not angry that you hate him. That's a feeling. Yeah. I'm not angry that you think I'm a jerk. That's a thought. I'm not angry that you want to live with the people down the street who have a swimming pool. I'm not angry because you want to live on potato chips and, and Pepsi all your life. That's a wish. That's fine. 
but if you steal to get the, the Pepsi, I'll be angry about the stealing. Mm -hmm. If you, if when I wake up in the morning, you're, you're camping out at the neighbor's house, I'll be angry at that behavior. So it's to separate the two. And when kids get the difference in the, so when we say I'm not angry at you, I'm angry at your behavior, we have to mean it, which means if I say, uh, uh, you shouldn't have taken that from your brother. Okay, fair. He, it was a behavior. I'm angry that he did a behavior. And then I add one more sentence, which is, you just want your own way. As soon as I add that sentence, I'm now I'm angry at the child, angry at my assumption about his motive, mm -hmm. which is he did that because he wanted his own way. When we make assumptions about kids' motives, when we're disciplining them around their behavior, we almost always find something bad. Yeah. Uh, but how do we know that's why he did it? And even if we're right, at that time, if we say it, he will get defensive. True. Whereas if I just say, I'm angry that you hit your brother, uh, now he might get somewhat defensive about trying to give me reasons why he hit his brother. Uh, but when he gets it, that the reasons uh, are fine, but the showing in that behavior is not fine. Mm -hmm. His thinking is fine. His feelings are fine. His perception is fine. Uh, his perspective is fine. All that is good. So, and when parents consistently do that, they restrict their evaluations to behavior. Kids talk about their inner life. So when parents say, my teenager never talks to me, often it's because the too often the parents have said, you shouldn't think that. You shouldn't want that. You shouldn't feel that. Then they stop telling the parent what they think, feel, and want. But if the parents don't evaluate those thoughts and feelings and wishes, just accept them. You know, the kid wishes that, uh, uh, I don't know, he wishes to drop out of school. Well, that's a hard one for a parent. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I just can accept that he has that wish and say, okay, so you really would like to drop out of school, help me understand, how come? Mm -hmm. And then wonder about it with curiosity. Uh, have empathy when he says that, it seems to him that all the, the kids tease him because they think he's a geek or a jerk or he's clueless or whatever. He thinks the teachers are, are don't like him or whatever. You know, he's getting, and I have empathy about that, about the hard stuff. And, and he hears, hears me understanding and supporting him over his inner life. My guess is at the end of that conversation, uh, uh, and I, I say to him, so I get it, how hard it is. And I get that. And I get that. Yeah. Anything I could do to be helpful? Because, uh, you know, my fear is if you dropped, if it, you did end up dropping out of school, and I'm, I'm going to give you a hard time about that, if you actually try. Uh, but if you end up doing it, uh, my guess is you regret it. And then the kid looks at me and says, Oh, don't be silly. I'm not going to drop out of school. And you never told him, you know, you just try to make sense of why he wants to drop out of school. So many times behaviors take care of themselves when what the behavior represents of stealing something or hitting his brother or, I don't know, arguing about everything under the sun and uh, never cooperating. Uh, once we understand what that means and the kid knows we get and the kid knows we don't like it, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the kid knows we accept what he wants. We don't like his behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, the behavior often fades away. It's interesting. Any idea why that happens, Dan? Why the behavior fades away once? And, and we've, seen it, we've seen it here, you know, that, that when we drop the rules. Often the behavior, a lot of the traumatized kids don't have much of their reflective functioning is limited. Namely, they don't know what they think, feel, and want. They don't know how to express it. Kids who haven't had trauma in their background, haven't had attachment disruptions and disorganization, problems with attachment, those kids are pretty good at telling you what they think, feel, and want. They could talk about their inner life. Kids that I saw in therapy couldn't do it. And that's because the trauma interfered with that process. And probably the original biological parents or the original traumas interfered with that process. Uh, made light of it, wasn't interested in it. So the kids didn't develop it. So how do they express their distressful inner life with actions? So often 
the actions represent their only way to communicate they're unhappy about something. A good example is healthy toddlers. I'm so sorry, what was that? Is what? Healthy toddlers. Uh-huh. So you got a two-year-old. We call them the terrible twos. You got a two-year-old who's, who's uh, having a little fit, a little meltdown, because he can't play with something. <clears throat> uh, he really wants to play with something now, and I'm saying, no, he can't. He, he wants to continue to play uh, uh, rather than come in for dinner. He wants to play outside rather than come inside. And I say, no, you have to. So I'm bringing him in. He's screaming and yelling and fussing. He's two. He has a healthy life. He's securely attached. Mm-hmm. But why is he doing that? Because he can't talk. Mm-hmm. He can't be like a four-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 15-year-old. Well, they sometimes go back and do it. Too. Yeah. <laughs> but let's stay with a two-year-old. It's amazing when I convince parents, what do you do with a toddler when they do that? If you use reason, if you use timeouts, if you give them consequences, you're making a tiny situation much bigger than it needs to be. When he says, I want to stay outside and play, and he's, he's crying and yelling and fussing, you're a meanie, I don't like you. You know, his two-year-old is yelling at his parent. If the parent says, I get it, and you match the energy and you just say, I get it, you really want to come in, I know how much you want to play, and I'm saying you have to come in now, and you don't like me because I'm saying you got to come in because you want to play outside. How can I help you, son? I know you're really upset. You're kind of angry with me. Is there anything I could do to help you, though? How about a little hug? You hug them and they're fine. If you stay with with pace, actually, with a two-year-old, they respond instantly to it. They rarely continue with their their little tantrum because a two-year-old does, can't tell you what he's distressed about. Mm-hmm. You communicate, I get it, you're really distressed. You get it? Okay, I'm good then. <laughs> and then they drop their anger. So, so in matching the intensity, which, which is a, a principle we talk to our staff about, we talk to the parents about, any things you could share with us about, uh, you know, techniques for doing that or things we ought to be aware of when you're matching the intensity? Because, again, a lot of people worry that we're saying, you know, fly off the handle. We're not saying that. We're saying you don't have to agree with the student, but to match the emotional intensity of the moment is to engage with them. Yeah, uh, correct. And I'd say it somewhat differently, which is the intensity. I'm matching the body's expression of an emotion. Like if a kid is angry, how do we know they're angry? It's their voice, it's their face, it's their gestures and their postures. Yeah. Well, if I match that, but I'm not angry, uh, the kid thinks or experiences me as understanding their anger. Yeah. I get it. It's, I call it loud empathy. Oh, I love so it. The, the kid is screaming and I say, you really are angry about this. I get it. You really want to do it. And you think I don't understand and I'm clueless because you're saying no. Is that it? Well, when I talk like that, the kid knows I'm not angry, but it sounds similar to them when they express their anger. It's called matching the affect by the researchers, uh, the affect being the body's expression of an emotion. And you can match the affect and not have the emotion. Yeah. And it's the same with sad kids. I'm not sad, but I talk quietly and gently and they get it and they feel better. And with hyperactive kids, I get more animated and focused, a little more energy and hyperactive kids tend to focus better. Uh, they tend to be agitated and I just match their agitation with animation, but I'm regulated. So that'd be the second part. I don't fly off the handle. I'm always regulated when I'm doing that. I'm not dysregulated. I'm not like they may be dysregulated. Then it's going to be a mess if I could dysregulate and I start screaming and yelling and fussing because I'll be matching the emotion then I'll be out of control myself and it's only, it will escalate. So when I uh, teach parents about it, I really make it clear uh, when the kid's angry, I'm not telling you to get angry. In fact, I'm saying, don't be angry. Right. But if you match the energy of how he expresses that anger, it'll probably help him with it better than you're staying calm. Because if you stay calm, often he doesn't think you understand that he's angry. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Now, shifting the curiosity, forgive me, but, and I'm going to reveal my age here. But when I think about curiosity, I think about Columbo, the detective, and how we used to wonder out loud about 
possible scenarios and, you know, show from the 70s. But in my mind's eye, curiosity is somewhat similar to that, where basically you're just kind of talking about and expressing a, a, a natural curiosity without judgment about why somebody might do something or why, you know, why they behave the way they did. Is that how you see it? Is that accurate? Right. That's it. It's the same as it. it it's in, in, interwoven with acceptance. There's no judgment involved. So I would never say to a kid, why'd you do that? That's judgmental. Right. I'd say, instead, I'd say, hey, I wonder why you did that. I'm just curious. Why do you do that? Now, that doesn't mean I won't be tough on the behavior that he did. But when I talk about why he did it, I'm never judgmental about why he did it, only about the behavior. Mm-hmm. And because if I say, why'd you do that? He will say, I don't know. I don't care. None of your business. He'll, he'll get defensive. Mm-hmm. It's how we approach the curiosity. We have to be totally accepting and non-judgmental. And then the curiosity work because we're saying, I'm interested in your inner life, the meaning of that behavior. And then once I understand the meaning, I have a better idea of what I'm going to do about your behavior. Yeah. Which is another thing I tell parents. Uh, what, you know, they say, well, I give them a consequence for the behavior. And I, I say, what does the behavior mean? I don't know. Well, why do you give him a consequence? Mm-hmm. Well, because I don't want that behavior. But he might keep doing it if you don't know why he's doing it. Consequence may have nothing to do with the behavior. Unless you just want to rely on fear and up in the, the pain of the behavior. I mean, I guess in the short term, that'll work, but it won't work in the long run. And it certainly won't build your relationship. The best way to decide on what the consequence should be is the meaning of the behavior. And you can't get the meaning unless you're curious about it. Sometimes the consequence ought to be something positive when we figure out that the behavior represents a deficiency in a child's life. He needs something positive. Oh, okay, he's not gonna get a, a negative consequence then he'll get a positive one for misbehavior. Well, that makes parents nuts, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Bottom line is he has to change his behavior. And if the meaning of the behavior is he's scared at night or something, or he, you know, he's disappointed about something, he hasn't been able to say it. And I'm showing him how to express his sadness or his vulnerability or his need for comfort or whatever it is. Uh, often the behavior just fades away. You know, we, we have an, I have an example that, that we've shared here where we had a student who stole a box of granola bars out of the cafeteria. And frankly, at places I might have worked previously, the focus would be on you don't steal, you know, the, the, the problem with that, you're crossing people's boundaries, whatever. Instead, it was more of, you know, he, because of everything he was deprived of as an infant and later in life, he needed to make sure, you know, that he had food handy. And so when we, when we talked about verbalize your needs, let the staff know if you'd like some granola bars, we'll make sure I'm available for you. You don't have to steal a box and hide it. Let's talk about it and be overt yes. about that when we understood right. the meaning of the behavior. Yes. Right. And when you got a traumatized kid with a lot of loss, often it goes right back to that. The symptoms often connect to the traumas, the original traumas. And the parents say, why isn't it traumatized in eight years? I said, that doesn't matter. He's still, he may be frozen there. He, it may have de- developmental deficits due to the trauma. It may be unresolved issues due to the trauma. And there's a good chance the symptoms are connected to the trauma. Yeah, definitely. And then, and then uh, empathy. I, I think you, you touched on it a little bit ago. The idea of empathy is really to understand the motivation behind. And, and you can understand why they might feel the way they feel, even if you don't agree with the behavior. Is that accurate? Oh, sure. So he swears at his father, and I say, oh, my goodness, you swear at your father. Uh, and I'll do it in a casual, relaxed way. I'm not going to yell at him. You swear at your father. Why would you do that? You know, I'll, you swear at your father. My guess is you're really angry with your father, and he's, he was probably got angry at your swearing at him because he probably doesn't like it when you swear at him. So help me understand that. What was going on? Well, you know... He wouldn't let me play with my friend. Oh, okay, because he doesn't care what I want. Oh, now I'm moving into vulnerable. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care. Oh, my goodness. So it seems to you, your dad doesn't care what you want? No, he doesn't. Oh, I can see why you'd be angry about that because he's your dad. And if what you want, what you, you know, what's important to you, he says it's not important to him. He doesn't care that it's important to you. 
Well, if that's his attitude, I can see why you'd be angry about it. I'm not excited about the swearing, but I can understand the anger. So how come he doesn't care about what you want? He doesn't care about me. Oh my gosh. It seems to you, your dad doesn't care about you. That'd be very hard. My guess is you don't feel very close to your dad. So why wouldn't he care about you? He doesn't like me. Oh my goodness, that's really hard. Why do you think your dad doesn't like you? Well, he, I get into trouble and Billy doesn't. He likes Billy. He loves Billy more than me. He's the, Billy's a good kid and I'm the bad kid. Oh my gosh, that'd be really painful if you live in a house where you think your parents love your brother more than they love you. It'd be very difficult, very hard, very, very, very challenging uh, life if that's so. Yeah. Uh, and you say it's because, because, well, I get into trouble. Uh, and in fact, Sometimes I think they don't want me and they made a mistake in getting me. And sometimes I think that if they could, they'd get rid of me. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, the pain of that. If you think your parents, thought of, you know, I'm moving more and more into the meaning he's given to why he wasn't allowed to play with his friend, which the parents may be sitting there stunned. What? Yeah. And some parents who are burned out will think he's oh, making it all up as an excuse. And I'm convinced the great majority of time it's not. He really believes that stuff. Wow. Well, so and, what are, what are we going to do at the end of the day? Then I'll say, have you told your parents that? No. Because he doesn't. He can't talk and he's too ashamed to talk. Well, how about if I tell them for you? All right. Okay, I'll tell them for you. I'll pretend I'm you for a second here. That I did swear yesterday, and you're right, I did swear, because I was very angry, because it seems to me you don't, you don't care what I want. It's like, you don't care about me. It seems to me you just... I don't know. You just seem to be disappointed in me that you wish I was like Billy and I'm not. So it just seems to me I never will be. It seems to me, it seems to me you just don't want me anymore. Well, so I say that <laughs> for the kid. Now use the kid's voice and the kid's emotion, the vulnerability. Sometimes in the middle of when I'm talking for a kid about the meaning of his behavior, he's crying. Wow. Because he really feels vulnerable over the story that's emerging about why he swore at his dad. Now, dad is sitting there and he's seeing his son and his son swearing in a new light. Mm-hmm. He's going to have more understanding, more patience. So he'll be able to say most of the time, and I might guide him or give him an idea what pace is about, which I would have done before that. Dad will probably say, son, I get it now. I didn't understand why you were so angry with me, so angry to swear. Uh, you really think that I love Billy more than you? And, oh, man, I have to do a better job when I'm angry at what you do, showing him how much I love you. You're as important to me as Billy is. Yeah, you get into trouble more than he does, but that's that's small, that's not the point. The point is you're my son and I love you as much as Billy. I just have to find a way to show you. And I'm still gonna have to say no about your behaviors. And I'm still gonna challenge behaviors. I gotta do a better job of showing you how much I love you when I'm disciplining you for your behavior. And we could figure out how to do that. And if, if, uh, Oh, yeah, the swearing. So, uh, yeah, what are we going to do about the swearing? Because I really don't like the swearing. I get it that you're angry. And we have to find another way you could show me you're angry rather than swearing. So we address the behavior in the context of empathy for the meaning of the behavior for a kid who feels. And if we're talking about an adopted kid, a traumatized adopted kid, comes from a terrible history, has a sibling who acts reasonably well, I am 100% sure he or she will think there's not enough love to go around and they're not going to get much. Mm. It'll go to their sibling. Yeah. So, so you have that shame coupled with everything else that's occurred in their life. Correct. It's a rare foster kid, adopted kid who came out of foster care system, a kid who was traumatized, a kid who was started in an orphanage. It's a rare one who isn't filled with shame. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they make sense of their life. How, um, how do you encourage parents, Dan, to, to do their own work, to basically keep their reservoir full so that they can have a pace frame of mind without becoming emotionally burned out? Because this is such challenging work for anybody, much less parents who really weren't prepared for some of what they found out about their kids. How do I do it? Yeah. Tell them to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> you and Bob Newhart, right? <laughs> right, right. Now, how do I do it? With pace. 
Yeah. Yeah. The same way, uh, you know, they're doing the best they can. They're good people. They love the kid. Yeah. This isn't why they adopted. They don't want to have to lock up the refrigerator at night. <laughs> they don't like themselves for screaming as their kid every day, 10 times. And they don't know what else to do. They're desperate. Yeah. So I start with empathy. And then uh, really get how hard it is. Empathy, empathy, empathy. Accept their feelings. Mm-hmm. Accept their thoughts. Accept their doubts. Uh, their worries, uh, their regrets, maybe. And then I'm curious about what they tried, what they haven't tried. Uh, I'll throw in curiosity about is there particular reasons why that behavior is driving them nuts? Mm -hmm. Well, when it drives you nuts? Yeah, it would, but it really drives you nuts. Any idea why it really drives you nuts? I don't know, it just does. Okay, can we step back for a second? Uh, What was it like when you were growing up? (laughs) Right. Parents get annoyed with me then. What's it have to do with my childhood? Well, actually, there's very much, very clear research. The way we were raised affects how we raise our kids, for better or worse. And some parents say it doesn't because they're not like their parents. Well, then it might affect them as a parent by restricting what they can do. Like if they had very strict authoritarian parents, they may, the danger they may have One is that they will be the same way, but they're convinced they never will be. Then the danger is they'll become permissive parents and they'll avoid any conflict. And then the pendulum goes the other way. Yes, and the kid needs some strength and guidance and firmness, but he doesn't need authoritarian, but he doesn't need permissive either. So I have to, or it could be more of a gut level. If the parents were raised with an extremely angry father, for example, and now the kid gets angry and it activates the same feelings they had when their father yelled at them, then they're gonna react in a similar way or the opposite of a similar way. There'll be, sometimes parents have said to me, you know, I swore when I, uh, when I left that home, I would never let anybody ever talk to me again like my father used to talk to me. And now my son's doing the same thing. And man, that makes them enraged when their son gets angry with them because they feel their father's voice. They hear their father's voice. So then I have to ask the parents to resolve those old issues. That doesn't mean a year of therapy. It could mean two, two sessions of just reflecting on it, making sense of it, and seeing the connection, inhibiting the first reaction that, would, that was based on how they were raised when they were kids. That, uh, you know, the, the idea of making sense of your past, I tell, I tell our parents, None of us have perfect childhoods and none of us, you know, need to have perfect childhoods. But whatever's occurred to us in regards to our relationships with our upbringing, we do need to make sense of it, be able to make sense of it. So it doesn't, you know, influence as much what we're trying to do today. And in fact, I worry when parents say they have perfect childhoods. Uh, (laughs) Number one, it could be they're, well, they're sort of not facing the facts they hadn't. But... On the other hand, they may have had a wonderful childhood with incredible parents. Why would I worry then? Because they're not ready for guerrilla warfare when they have a kid who's not, a, who's not like their parents. You know, they're not used to kids swearing at them and yelling and fussing. They never did. Not because their parents were mean to them, but because it was a cooperative, nurturing, warm. Uh, everybody sort of got along most of the time. And it's valid and it's true. But then all of a sudden, this kid comes into the home and he, he has a whole different rule book. Yeah. Yep. And they don't know what to do. It just it can panic you and, and infuriate you and, you know, just make you freeze. You just don't, you haven't had the experience. Whereas uh, all of us who have had imperfect childhoods, we got some practice with having conflicts in a family, yep. disagreeing, having a, a tantrum, being having parents who sometimes were unfair and a bit harsh and stuff and uh, made poor choices sometimes and your own poor choices sometimes. You just learn how to repair afterwards, face it, fix it, you know. Yeah, so I don't, I, I'm not, re, I'm not relieved when a parent convinces me they've had a perfect childhood. So when, in, in your work with DDP, is there a significant difference in the work you do, say, with smaller children versus adolescents? Is it, 
does it change for you working with adolescents through a DDP lens? Well, sure. Um, does it change for a parent relating to their three-year-old or their 15-year-old? Sure. Yes. It's changed. It changes for me the same way. Uh, just a second. Sounds like you're getting a phone call. Can I call you back, huh? Well, it's just like you relate to a, a kid in your own home. If they're three or six or 12, based on their age, you just relate differently. So I relate differently. You talk differently. So I talk differently. With a three-year-old, I'm going to have much more animation than a 15-year-old, or they'll think I'm nuts. <laughs> uh, uh, but it'll be a similar model, similar ways of engagement, similar, the principles are the same. It just looks different depending on the age of the, the kid. The younger kids, you have to be more concrete, more recent. Uh, you're not, you're not going to talk, you're not going to develop stories as complex as you would with a 15-year-old. Uh, younger kid uh, probably needs to affectively get it that you really understand. A 15-year-old might need more ability to reflect on it and see the bigger picture than a five-year-old, but they're also more able to do it. You know, a 15-year-old has an advantage over a five-year-old. They can reflect better. Right. They can make sense of things better. So it's easier for them to develop a sort of an identity, an identity that can change. It's sort of a second childhood for a teenager, second growth spurt. So you could approach them in a more reflective way if you can get them to reflect, of course. Right, right. Uh, uh, and then they can sort of, if you're able to connect with them, they can make sense of it. Like uh, what I mentioned, uh, the, the symptoms connect to the history, the trauma. 15-year-olds get that. And yeah. so they never realized it. And then all of a sudden, they realize the, the roots of their intense anger at their adoptive parents are from the early, the first two years of neglect in their life. Right. And they get it. That's why it's so hard when they're frustrated now. It really is what's being activated is that horrible frustration of neglect, which has more psychological damage than abuse does. Yeah. They get the pain of it and then they see it. And then what happens is they're able then to inhibit the first reaction like I want parents to do and, and see their adoptive mom and dad are not their biological parents. This is not neglect. This is just routine discipline. They're able to see that and inhibit that. And just as important, they have less shame about their behavior yeah. because they think they're bad kids. You know, no one else is in residential care. Right. No one else has these wild tantrums and they break things and they punch people. Why do they? Why do they? Because they're bad. They're convinced of it. Now the parents may not say that, but they're trying to make meaning. I'm selfish. I'm bad. I said, "Why are you?" Well, I punched my dad in the head. Well, it's due to the fact you were abused. Oh yeah, you, yeah. Well, I have that excuse. I can go down there and so poor me. I was abused, so now I could punch my dad in the head. So that's shame talking, right? But so I say, okay. So you don't see the connection, do you? No, it's just an excuse. You know, he's not, he didn't abuse me when I was two. So then I'll work with a kid about re-experiencing that original abuse. What's it like to be a two-year-old, three-year-old who's being slapped, locked in a closet? You lose 24 hours of eating because you dropped, broke something on accidentally. What is that like? Well, I, I developed their empathy for themselves when they were two. Uh, and then they're more likely to see that it still affects them when they're frustrated. And it's still sort of, they feel some rage over the horror of neglect and they're experiencing neglect again when their adoptive parents are saying no. Yeah. No, it's a very challenging word for our kids. <laughs> yeah. So the shame is, so then the shame is less then the frustration is easier to deal with. And they're more able, uh, they're more able to, uh, Except the, uh, uh, the, the no, it, it's not a threat to the relationship. It's not a statement about you're a bad kid and you don't deserve something good. It simply means you can't do it for this reason. And they believe you. That's the reason. They may huff and puff a little bit, but they're not going to throw things anymore, swear at you anymore. Right. So, so Dan, 
you know, we, we like to talk about the moment-to-moment -moment interactions, parents to children, especially when the kids are dysregulated. And helping, you know, Matt, you, you spoke to matching the intensity, okay? Um, what's your experience with managing teens in an emotional outburst? Any recommendations you might have for parents in managing those so that everybody stays safe, but you can, you know, talk the child down, work with the child, they can borrow serenity from you, what, what have you? Well, each child is unique. And so when I give recommendations to parents, I always say, uh, if it doesn't intuitively, it doesn't fit your kid or your situation, don't do it. Because every kid is unique. And you may know in your gut something won't work. Don't do it, don't do it then. Or try it once and if it doesn't work, throw it away. Yeah. Uh, but, but the sort of bottom line recommendations are start with yourself. You can't fly off the handle or it's over. Mm -hmm. So the kid, when parents say he makes me mad and he does it to make me mad, he does it on purpose to make me mad. So I'm really glad you're aware of that. Now we know what we have to work on first. Take away his power to make you mad. Well, when he does that, when you get mad, I say, well, actually, no. Uh, I could see the temptation to get mad, but I don't want to give him the power to make me mad. He, he can't. Why should I give him control of my emotions? Now, I might be firm about it. I might choose to get angry about it, but I'm not going to react to him in a way that he sort of wants me to react. Mm -hmm. traumatized kids who don't trust people don't know how to have engagement with people don't know how to relate in a satisfactory cooperative way uh, and there's a lot of research on kids with attachment disorganization as a lot of kids have when they've been traumatized by their own parents uh, they, they love control yes. control battles and so you can't make me do it mm -hmm. And the parents fall for it. Oh, yeah? I'll show you. <laughs> right. Then you After get the two hours of grabbing and wrestling on the floor. Uh, the kid finally put his shoes away. <laughs> the parents are covered with sweat. The kid is covered with sweat. But the parents won the battle. <laughs> he put his shoes away. I did make, I can make you do it. Is it worth it? Especially if the kid knows what happened. So, uh, two hours later, he does it again because he wants, okay, you can win, win another battle. You're going to pay for it. <laughs> two more hours of sweating. <laughs> so anyway, we got to be aware of when we draw the line, what we're drawing the line about. And the kid, uh, I'm convinced of this, when they want to control, we try to control their behavior and they're saying, no, you can't. They try to control our emotions and they try to make us angry at them mm -hmm. or be afraid of them or give up on them or feel horrible because we're inadequate. Mm -hmm. We don't know what to do. So we're in shame. We're in parental shame because we can't raise a kid. Right. So if they can control my emotions and make me angry, anxious, give up or feel inadequate, I will never influence a kid. I'll do it forever. Yeah. He has power there. So I got to get control of my own emotions and I got to be able to reflect on these things, stay regulated. That's battle number one. So in the moment when a kid is really agitated, I can't get agitated. I got to stay regulated. Yeah. That really has to be it. Then I'm going to be experimenting with, I think matching affect works a lot. Sometimes it might not, mm -hmm. but it depends on how we match it. I got to make sure I'm not matching the emotion, just the expression. It's just the intensity or the rhythm or the movement or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I'll do that and watch and see what it, see if the kid starts to engage me that way. Some kids just get more angry because it actually works. And then they get angry because they don't want it to work. It starts, they start to calm down. <laughs> then they get angry because they're calming down. Kids get angry at me because they can't stay angry with me. <laughs> so then I have empathy for how hard it is when you can't make me angry at them and it doesn't last <laughs> if they're successful with and I'll say, boy, that was a good one. You made me angry at you for three seconds. <laughs> Want to try for four? Then they really get annoyed. So I, I can't be sarcastic then. I have to be. Oh, okay. how, how have you been able to, to help parents understand or actually just simply not personalize it when the kids know, boy, they just know what buttons to push? 
Yeah, well, I, it's easier said than done, but I'd work on that. And the kids, it's, I call it misplaced mistrust. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kids should not trust their biological parents who abuse or abandon them. And they don't get it. They can trust you, but it's misplaced. It comes from what the biological parents deserve, but they just don't understand that. So if the parents can feel that, this is directed at my the kid's parents when he was two, not to his adoptive parents, and really feel that in my heart, have compassion for the kid because of his history, then it's easier not to react yeah. when I'm setting the limit. Okay, uh, probably this is not the time when he's in the middle of it to give, give him a lecture or start piling up consequences. You do that another time, I'll take away your bike. You did it again. Now you lost it for two weeks. Now four weeks. I don't care. Take it away for two months. Oh, yeah? Okay, it's, you lost it for six months. <laughs> you know, that is a disaster. Everybody's embarrassed at the end of the day. And it's, you know, it just, so in the anger, in the moment is not a time to get the consequence. Calm down, just get the behavior under control again. I got to know, do I give the kid more space, more time? Do I walk away? Some kids get worse when you walk away. Some kids do better. Some kids, when you say, do you need a break? We'll talk about it in a bit. They're fine with that. Some parents say, well, we got to do it in the moment. I said, no, you don't. Uh, some parents say, well, I was told that uh, if you don't give him a consequence immediately after the behavior, he doesn't associate the behavior with the consequence. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, that's true for rats and pigeons. That research is based on studies of rats <laughs> and pigeons. But human beings can give You can tell the kid three days later. Remember what you did and I was angry about it? And I said, I got to figure out what to do about it after I got my anger went away. Well, I finally figured out what to do about it. This is the consequence. The kid knows. He knows the connection. He does. He is a brain, He's not a rat or a pigeon. I'm very. I'm so relieved, frankly, that you know, even even residential treatment and the field of mental health in general is just so moving away from the behavioral assumptions uh, that we all operated out of for so long. Yes, and part of that is our understanding about relationships and the attachment, behavioral interventions, consequences, uh, modeling, coaching, practicing. Those are decent cognitive behavioral interventions yeah. that work when the kid is securely attached to you. When he trusts your motives, when he trusts that you're doing this in his best interest, he may fuss and moan a little bit. He doesn't particularly want to develop this new habit <laughs> or give up something that he wants to do. But he takes a deep breath and realizes that you're doing it because it's in the best interest of him or the family. But the kid who doesn't trust you because he's not securely attached with you, and then you give him a consequence, he sees his power and you're doing it to make him unhappy. You're doing it to, to, because you don't like him. You're doing it just to win a power struggle and then he'll fight back because he tr- doesn't trust your motives. He thinks it's a power play on your part. And you think it's a power you know- play on his part. It's, it's not uncommon for us to have a concern from parents who go, well, look, my child is 15, 16. They're going to be legally an adult in two years. If I don't teach them consequences right now, the world, they're, they're, they're going to fail. How do, you, uh, how do you manage some of that anxiety? And what we, you know, what we try to do is help parents understand there'll be a time and place for that. But right now, it's about the trust. It's about the relationship. It's about helping them feel safe in a relationship before we have to worry about controlling the behavior. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, the research is clear. Securely attached kids do much better as adults. They don't become babies. They don't become dependent. They don't become entitled and feel they can do whatever they want. Securely attached kids get reasonable expectations. They get the need to inhibit, the need to have long-term plans because of the safety that comes from a home in which they're securely attached. And then they relax and then they learn. Uh, So uh, yes, the kid knows consequences, but the kid, how's he gonna, I'm sorry. Yes, the kid knows that there are natural consequences. He doesn't do his work, he gets fired. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't study and do do well on his tests. He gets kicked out of school. And he does know that stuff. Why do we have to make a big fuss over 
I don't know what, you know, a, a little thing thinking that's otherwise he's not going to learn the big things. He'll learn the big things, especially if I have good habits. I understand consequences. And the secure, securely attached kids want to be like their parents. And when parents have good habits, parents relate well to each other. Uh, adolescents, they rock a little, get shaky a little bit. But man, when they're 18 and 19 and 20, they often have the same values, the same interests, the same hopes and dreams of, as their parents. Mm -hmm. They relate to their partner the same way their parents relate to each other and, and to them. And it's not because we gave them lectures and consequences all the time. It's because we just had a relationship with them that evokes that, that cooperative learning, reciprocal way of being with somebody you trust. So we are, we're coming close to the end of our time, Dan. Uh, two other questions, if I, if I may. One, what do you kind of foresee as the future of parenting adopted children? Uh, given what we're learning now about, you know, uh, moving away from behavioral methods and the importance of the relationship and attachment. Well, also the, what we're learning about trauma too. Oh, uh, thank you, yes. Uh, trauma doesn't go away. That's the definition of trauma. It doesn't go away. That, otherwise, it won't be a trauma. Yeah. Uh, so we have to help it to go away. And sometimes the passage of time is, helps a lot, but sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes we have to be very dramatic in our differences between how I'm raising the kid and how they were raised. So it probably means that I have to be more sensitive to how to discipline, how to repair a relationship, how to comfort and support a child, how to help them be aware that I love them even when I'm saying no to them. Yeah. And that's not a rational talk, it's just a way of my being, my presence with them. So anyway, I think in the future, uh, we'll prepare adoptive parents by making them aware. Bring them into your home and love them, but the idea that he's gonna change because of that is not fair to you or to the kid. Then you'll be disappointed in him and angry with him because he doesn't respond to your love. It needs consistent, persistent care with much empathy about how hard it is for him, getting to know him, separating his behavior from who he is, uh, repairing the relationship again and again and again, uh, keeping yourself healthy and keeping a good relationship with your partner so you're getting support from someone else since you're not getting much from your kid. Uh, and being in for the long haul, that it may take a while. Now, I'm not doomsayer. You know, some adopted kids have been traumatized. My goodness, within a year, they're wildly uh, different. Yeah. And I'll never predict that. Some kids respond better to good care than other kids. Right. It depends in part on their age, the severity of the abuse and neglect, the length of the abuse and neglect whether or not they had any supportive person in their life. Sometimes I'm thinking, why is this kid responding so well? Then I realized there was a grandmother in the picture who gave him unconditional love when he was with her two days a week. Yeah. And that was, it caused him to be resilient and it caused him to have a different view of himself than he would have had if he had seven days a week of abuse and neglect. And who knew that? It wasn't in the records, you know, until we start exploring his life and saw a picture and he got all warmy, warm, warmy. <laughs> he felt warm <laughs> and he felt very nice inside because uh, then he started talking about her and realized how much he loved her. And then the need was to find her, his biological grandmother. Anyway, so we can't predict. We have to be ready and aware that it could be quite difficult for quite a while, it might not be. Uh, Try to be ready for it means uh, I would ask parents to do their own work, preparing themselves for are there issues in their own childhood that are still rocky and shaky and they may not have resolved fully. Uh, so there will be more focus on how to have relationships with kids who don't know how to have a relationship, how to help those kids let go of the original traumas, the relational trauma, and learn how to how to relate the original trauma plus attachment problems cause the research is very clear. Uh, when you have attachment problems and you have uh, abuse and neglect and or neglect in your life, you're likely to have relationship problems. So I got to help this kid learn how to have reciprocal relationships yeah. that are good for both people. 
uh, he's likely to have reflection problems, reflecting on his life, reflecting on mentalizing the ability to read the minds of his parents. When I say, why'd your mother do that? Because she wants me to be unhappy. And he's convinced that was her motive. Yeah. You know, so he has to read her mind better. That wasn't her motive. So I have to help him to reflect better and then to regulate, regulate his emotions, his thinking, his behavior. Uh, so because trauma and attachment interferes with the development of those things yeah. and, and willpower doesn't do it. Reason doesn't do it. Consequences doesn't do it. It's, it's a persistent ongoing relationship. And then these, so then the parents also need or hopefully adoption in the future. It will be an, a team around these parents because you're going to be in the front line here, which means they need competent professionals who understand about attachment and trauma and go way beyond behavioral management, thinking this is all it takes, yeah. and help the parents to have a relationship with a kid who doesn't want a relationship or doesn't know how to have a relationship. So they need competent uh, mental health people. Mm-hmm. Oh, have I thought of school? Well, they need competent teachers who know about trauma and know about attachment problems so that they can modify the school uh, ways of relating, the ways of doing consequences, ways of expecting types of expectations and support the kids so he's able to deal with a, a somewhat chaotic situation like schools often are uh, with peers who he doesn't know, have a clue how to relate with peers. Uh, peers are often for these kids are more difficult than parents because peers don't put the needs of the kid first. It's every man and woman, every boy and girl for themselves. Yeah, we 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 teach our staff. It's not it's not like a sibling rivalry. It's like conquering. Yes, that, right. There's not enough love to go around. I'm getting my share. Yeah, I'm getting more than my share. You know, actually, I'm going to hoard some. <laughs> I'm going to get it all. So, in case I need it in the future. So. Uh, yeah, Dan, we just touched on the surface of the work you've done uh, on DDP and PACE. I know uh, our parents will be interested in learning more. They, there are YouTube videos with you uh, talking about these kind of things. Um, but also, you've written some seminal books on attachment, trauma, and healing and parenting. Can you, can you touch on a little bit of those and how parents can get them? Well, if you buy them. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> Amazon. There you go. Everybody, everybody and, gets that answer. Go to Amazon. You know, I get it. I, I, I used to buy the books from my publisher and then sell them, uh, you know, an extra 5% or something to cover the costs of doing it. And then I realized Amazon will sell my books to me cheaper than my publisher will. Really? Yes. The publisher gives me a discount, like 25% off or something. Amazon will give me 45% off on some of my books. So I start buying them through Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) I usually tell parents that check out Amazon first. They'll be cheaper. Uh, It depends on what you're looking for and the type of reading you like to do. But my building the bonds of of attachment parents like the most. But it's a pretty troubled kid with severe, intense behaviors. But probably some of the residential kids have similar behaviors and parents would identify with it. And the long journey of healing and transforming and building relationships with the kids like that are very similar to the model. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the books I, most of my books are for therapists. Uh, uh, Attachment focused Family Therapy Workbook, which is for therapists to learn. Healing Relational Trauma, which is for DDP therapists is my newest book. Uh, it's a book I wrote with Kim Golding, uh, Creating Loving Attachment, Sets for Parents mm-hmm. More. It's yeah. all about pace, really, almost all about pace. It's a good book, Creating Loving Attachments. Uh, I wrote a book for adults on attachment principles, uh, Eight Keys to Your Healthiest Relationships. It's for mm-hmm. all adults, but sometimes parents reading that, that because it's a, for adults, they're adults. Yeah. It's going to be of value to parents just about their own attachment history and how to handle regulation problems and relationship problems. Wonderful. Uh, attachment principles. Well, Dr. Hughes, we are so grateful for you and your work. And, and I could not uh, be more sincere in that. Um, we all know that there, there are, there's a dearth of adoption competent clinicians 
And I think speaking for myself, that the field of psychology and mental health for the longest time have marginalized adoptive families. And your work brings a spotlight to a much needed area. And I just express gratitude to you and thanks for what you're, what you're bringing to light. You're welcome. Uh, we have a good website, ddpnetwork.org. It has a lot of resources on it for parents. There's ideas for parents, uh, books, uh, uh, for parent books, child books. Uh, and there are YouTube things or you could get links to YouTube things. And it has a list of therapists trained in DDP who are certified in DDP uh, on it. So it's a good website, ddpnetwork.org. Wonderful. Dr. Hughes, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll probably reach out and hand you back again soon sometime if we can. And, and good luck with COVID. Good luck with, uh, with your next book, your revision, what have you. And uh, thank you again for being with us. Okay. Thank you, Norm, yeah. for talking with you. Bye now.